Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we're going to explore what some would call uncommon death rituals and perhaps broaden our perspective on how we can honor the dead. But first, allow me to introduce my first guest. Today, we have with us Ndume Olatushani. He's a self-taught artist who honed his craft during a 28-year incarceration, including 20 years on death row. He's been free since 2012. He has an art show that opened on Friday, October 20th at American Baptist College's Susie McClure Library. The show is titled, Black People Know the Good People of Charlottesville. And Dume Alatushani, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Well, it's an honor for me to be here, and uh, I think it's very important that you guys are doing what you're doing. Thank you very much, sir. It's an honor for us to have you. You know, you're an artist who got your skill and you cultivated it during this long period of incarceration. How did you discover your talent? Right. It actually, uh, um, you know, before I found myself sitting on death row, I I didn't have any interest in art. I think that uh, uh, other than being a a child and doing what uh, children do, Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, I never had really interest, uh, no interest in art. But the thing that happened to me when I landed on death row, uh, as you said, for something that I hadn't done, it was a uh, it was a guy on death row with me. He was an artist. And I actually commissioned him to do a portrait of him because I wanted to send it to my mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, long story short, this guy, uh, you know, did this, his interpretation of what my portrait was didn't look nothing like me. And uh, uh, if you can imagine, I'm sitting in a four by nine foot cell. I can't even stretch my arms out. I'm sitting there 23 hours of the day and I'm looking at this portrait that this guy did. Uh, and I'm thinking, I could have did a better job and kept my money. I think I must have gave him like six or seven cartons of cigarettes because that was like the currency in the prison. That yeah. it, uh, and uh, But before I actually consented to my mother, my mother was actually killed in a car accident. It was as I was picking myself back up from that uh, that I discovered uh, art as a way to uh, create freedom. So your, your, your exhibition... Black people know the good people of Charlottesville. It's on display at American Baptist College from October 20th through November 17th. Talk to me about these images that you're using in this new exhibition because they're, like I said, they're rather striking. Right. So <clears throat> this project started while, uh, I mean, the thought of it while I was sitting on death row. Uh, and I have, uh, back then I was, uh <sighs> I had incorporated a couple of these kind of historical images, you know, to speak about the racism and that type of stuff there. And so uh, lynching uh, was part of these earlier projects, but I always wanted to do something larger because one thing happened for me while I was sitting on death row was that um, I had an opportunity at some point to actually read this guy's story written by this guy named James Cameron. And he was actually uh, a lynching victim himself. And uh, he was, two of his friends 
the three of them was locked up. They was accused of raping or uh, shooting uh, some couple. And and so they was locked up. And uh, uh, they say like a crowd of like 10,000 people gathered, uh, broke these people out of jail, uh, took his two friends. These was kids, too. Took these two friends down. They lynched them. And he said, this guy, James Cameron, he said, uh, and I don't want to get a story, too much of the story away because I encourage people to go out and read this book. But uh, uh, he said that by the time the people broke him out of jail and took him down there where his two friends were strung up, uh, already strung up on this tree, mm-hmm. uh, he... He said by the time he got down there, he was he was more dead than alive because he had went through this gauntlet of people. Uh, and if you look at the image where his friends was already strung up, they tore the clothes off them in terms of this process. Uh, like he said, when he was taken from the jail, taken down there, went through this gauntlet of people, he said the people had the rope on his neck. It was actually pulling him up between his other two friends that was already strung up on this tree. Mm. And he said a voice over the crowd, and you could have to imagine this. He said a voice over the crowd, and according to the, some of the accounts, news accounts, I mean, like I said, there was thousands of people out here. That, uh, um, he said that a voice over the crowd just shouted out, let that boy go. He didn't do nothing. And it ain't like it was some divine voice. It was, yeah. some, it was somebody in the crowd that actually said it. And... Uh, uh, he said, whoever was pulling him up on the rope, let the rope go. He slumped back down to the ground. He don't have a whole lot of memory about how he even got back to the jail, but that's how he survived his lynching. And so when I was sitting on death row and had an opportunity to read that, that was like a, a not only was it kind of like a pick-me-upper for me, yeah. but it also, too, just kind of further fed this idea and my desire to actually create something to speak to this kind of uh, this history, but even more so how it ties how it tied in to the modern day use of the death penalty. So that was it. Just kind of further fed that. And fast forward, I came home June first of two thousand and twelve, and I was working for the Children's Defense Fund. And I had an opportunity uh, when they was going around the country uh, collecting these pickle jars of dirt from these lynching sites for the lynching museum. I had an opportunity to go up in East Tennessee to one of these sites and be a part of this whole thing. And it was uh, it was it was something in and of itself. Uh, And so that kind of further fed this thing that was already in me. And fast forward again. Donald Trump got elected in 2017. Uh, they had these races down in Charlottesville marching and down there with the uh, ignorance that they was on. And when he made the statement, uh, you know, it was good people on both sides down yeah. there. Yeah. That's when I knew, okay, this is the time for me to actually do this project because when you look at these photographs and, uh, and all the stuff that I did, I just kind of put my own spin on it, but it's, taken from historical photographs. So when you look at these historical photographs, you see hundreds and thousands of people out there, and I'm sure some people, uh, and I'm sure some people still around can probably look at people in there and say that's what they can, folks, or whoever they was, and they would say that these was good people. Yeah. And so uh, so that's the title, uh, Black People Know the Good People of Charlottesville. 
and uh, uh and you know in this whole project like I said uh, you know just wanting to uh put it out there so when people hear certain things that talking about back in the old days or whatever this some of this uh, uh rhetoric is rhetoric is that you would know there's a history to it so you ain't just waking up thinking, oh, okay, this is something new. And so, uh, and and maybe to understand that that history is not that long ago. It's not, and it's and it's unfolding before us right now. I mean, they they recently had a person right here in the state of Tennessee that uh, a legislative uh, elected person suggested that he wanted to bring lynching back as a form of execution because they can't get the drugs. Mm. Mm-hmm. to actually execute people in the way that they actually want to, even though that I started this project. Back in 2017, every day, I mean, with uh, people make it more relevant mm. uh, every day. And so uh, that's kind of where I'm at with it. You you used a lot of different materials right. in the work. Were any, tell me about that use of different of right. the different materials you used in this media. Right. So this work that I'm actually doing is uh, certainly multimedia uh, and where I'm just trying to uh, like I said, put my own spin on it. So I'm using like tree bark, uh, uh, you know, clothes and just anything that I possibly can to actually uh, draw people's attention. Like I said, to the importance of when you're listening to certain things. I mean, it's like we living in a time where they trying to take, uh, not even trying, they doing, banning certain education in school about some of these historical facts. And I'm saying that... Uh, you know what well, we already know. If you uh, if you don't remember it, you know we're gonna repeat it, and that's what's happening there, as far as I'm concerned. You know, lynchings and the stories about it, right, really causes a lot of pain and trauma. Of course, for humans in general, but specifically and especially African Americans. Of course, something that we heard about, but very few alive have experienced, have mm-hmm. had up close personal right. um, connection to it to see it as you. We're working on these pieces. Did you, in certain ways, imagine how people would react when they saw the finished products? I I certainly have my ideas about how I want people to react. Mm. But, uh, uh, I mean, it is traumatic. It was, I mean, it's uh, even for me, when I'm sitting down having to grapple with this stuff myself to go through the process, uh, uh, I mean, it can be some emotional stuff. you know, sitting, looking at these old photographs and being confronted with this, or not only, uh, you know, being confronted with it, but having some history and experience as a black man living in America about some of this stuff. And so uh, uh, it's like, uh, so yeah, I mean, I understand the trauma uh, behind that. And, uh, you know, my hope is, like I said, that when people see this, or it provokes some, not only some thought, but, uh, you know, some action on people's part to get up because, you know, knowledge makes us responsible. Mm-hmm. Once we know, you don't have no excuse. How can it benefit us to expose ourselves to this raw, to this too much truth? Right. I think that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I heard the point that you're making, although I would it pours back a little bit about, uh, I think that it's when we confront whatever that whatever that is, like I said, where we begin to know what it is, then I think that uh, better enable us to actually deal with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't necessarily think that 
you know, this idea that somehow exposing white kids, because this is the argument now that exposing white kids to some of this historical stuff is somehow traumatizing them. And I mean, when I hear that, it's like uh, some of the same people that are saying that, you don't have no, you completely oblivious to this kind of compounded trauma that black people been living. Uh, I mean, so it ain't just, uh, I mean, it's been compounded over time and it's still the same thing. And so uh, I don't, I don't think that being exposed and confronting those things is somehow a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, actually, because, like I said, once we know, then uh, uh, it's like we're sitting in here right now. Uh, this is my first time in this building. If you told me that, hey, listen, when you go down there, whatever you do, don't make a left at the end of this hallway because there's a hole down there. You're going to fall in it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, you know. And now if you go, you're responsible for making that left and falling through that hole. And not only that, but the fact that you know, you got a responsibility to tell me about that. Mm. And I think that if for some reason that the people in this building say, whenever somebody come in here, I don't want you to ever tell them about not going around that corner. Because they want me to keep people to keep falling in that hole. Then I'm saying that uh, that's a problem. Mm. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, like I said, knowledge makes us responsible. And when you know something, then you got a responsibility uh, to, uh, you know, to stand on that. I mean, if you really didn't know humanity. The exhibition Black People Know the Good People of Charlottesville is on display at American Baptist College from October 20th through November 17th. Thank you for being here. Thank yeah. you for talking to us about your work. Really appreciate this, sir. Right. Well, listen, I'm happy to be here. I think it's some important stuff. And uh, uh, like I said, it's an honor to actually be here with you. And and just really just kind of uh, being a part of, you know, what you're doing. I think, like I said, it's good work. Uh, you know, it's like... Uh, it's like a throwing an alarm clock in the graveyard of the walking dead when you sitting there and you got this platform. And I'm saying that uh, as an artist, uh, when we got a platform, I'm telling you a lot of responsibility come along with it. And so it's an honor for me to actually be here and just uh, being allowed to be a part of this platform that you got. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Yeah. We're we going to do our best to honor that and respect it. Right. The, quick note, this Friday, Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty is holding a wrongful convictions panel. It's a part of a six-week series also with American Baptist College called Doomed to Repeat, the Legacy of Race in Tennessee's Death Penalty and Criminal Legal System. We'll put the details on our web post. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore the different ways people recognize death and the rituals they engage in to honor those who have passed. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kelowna, and this is Nashville. The first time I had an intimate experience with death was when I was five years old. My maternal great-grandmother passed away. I remember my parents and grandparents having a discussion on whether I should attend her funeral services. They decided to not have me go. 
Five years later, I saw death up close again when my maternal grandfather passed away. This time, my parents allowed me to, to attend his services. As we entered St. Matthew's Church in Upper Manhattan, I remember seeing hundreds of people waiting in line to pay their last respects to my grandfather. At the young age of 10, I recognized two things. How many people whose lives were affected by my pop-up and how many and how servicing of, to remember, having a service to remember a life lived is as much for the people who are grieving as it is for the person who passed. Death rituals take different forms from what we would call the standard funeral. Cultures honor the lives of those who have had passed away differently. Sometimes services depend on spiritual beliefs and practices. Other times the service or remembering is held long after the honoree has transitioned. Everyday people lose someone they love. The COVID pandemic pushed many of us to think about the possible death of friends and loved ones and even our own mortality. So how can we think about death as a part of life? My first guest is here to help us consider that question. Dr. Chris McCusker is a professor, oral historian, and author of the new book, Just Enough to Put Him Away Decent, where she takes a look at the history of burial practices in the South. Dr. McCusker, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Well, thank you for welcoming me. Really a pleasure to have you. You know, I, I want to talk about death rituals. What does that term mean? Well, I define it as death care more than just a ritual. It's the burial of the dead, the mourning of the loss, and the comfort extended to the grieving. And one of the arguments I make in my book is that a fourth set of rituals appeared in the 20th century called, uh, not a real sexy term, life extension, mm. where Southerners died far younger than their biblical uh, three score and 10, and that it became expensive to bury Southerners at such young ages. And so death care came to be focused on extending life as well as making sure, uh, making the transition from home-based burials to more consumer, consumer urban um, burials by about 1920. Why did it become more expensive to bury younger people who passed away? Well, um, insurance companies and burial societies figured out that it was a good thing, especially in the black community, to gather together to bury people because uh, people died very young. They died in ugly ways. The lynching exhibit being an example of a, a place that was ugly. Mm -hmm. And so it was expensive because these people were insured or were part of the burial society. And if they died young, they hadn't paid in enough to really make it an economic, economically feasible. And the folks at places like North Carolina Mutual, the largest black-owned insurance company in North Carolina, um, knew this. And so white and black invested in these new rituals because of the cost. Why did you choose the topic for this book? And why did you choose to focus on this particular time frame? Well, I am a 20th century historian, so part of that, it's my DNA. But I moved to Murfreesboro in 2000, and I was driving down Highland Avenue, and the th cemetery is right in the middle of town. Mm. And I'm from San Francisco, California, where we have a place, Colma, California, City of the Dead. My aunt and Joe DiMaggio are buried there, but that's it. Whereas here, it's right in front of you. Um, the burial, there are 600, at last count, cemeteries in Rutherford County. 
um, because people buried on their land. It was a way to secure the land mm. be, at a time when financial situations after the Civil War were terrible. So, um, and it, so the South is an example of broader American traditions in flux, but it's also its own animal. Mm. And in and I'm not talking about say like the second line or the morning where people would, but in those everyday quotidian, daily activities of caring for the dead because it was so much a part of Southern life for mm. so long. Where, where people are born in the home and yes. they also die in that same home. And that's why they would call the midwives um, who cared for them shrouding women because they would come in and have you know, help the women give birth. And a lot of times those babies died and then the mamas died too. Mm. Now, tell me about your research process. What was that like? Well, the research process was wonderful because the American taxpayer via Barack Obama gave me a $122,000 NIH grant to go on the road for two years. And because death strips away everything, there's a poignancy and an authenticity about death that you get, you come across these beautiful stories. And so I went in search of the stories. And the best story I can tell you is I got to Virginia, to the Virginia Historical Society, and I was reading through a young man named Harold Leeser's papers. And um, he was from Virginia, and he was a pilot of a B-24 bomber. And I found a letter dated Jan uh, June 25th, 1944, and the last line is, and two, mom, I remember, we remember our prayers. Mm. And the next day he died. Mm. Four, uh, five guys made it off the plane, four survived the war. And for the rest of her life, Harold's mother received a Mother's Day card from one of the survivors. Mm. And at that moment, I had to get up and leave because I, it was the only time I started crying because the grace and the care and the, um, the sense of family responsibility being extended broadly because they had shared this global experience in World War II was profound. Who did you talk to throughout your research? Um, well, I talked to a friend of mine and she finally looked at me and said, you know, I get that this is really interesting, but just so you know, you're in a really weird place right now. Hmm. So what do you mean by that? Um, that I was being a little bit morbid. My students love it. I mean, <laughs> we're talking about this stuff all the time because, the, again, it gets down to the real life stuff. Um, I spoke to funeral directors. Um one of whom died before the book was finished, and it kills me that it wasn't finished beforehand. Um, I spoke to Southerners who had stories about death in their families. Um, I would say I would tell people stories. Historians are storytellers. And I would tell people stories, and then they'd have a death in their family, and they'd be watching what was going on on stage, on stage. Um, and I'd have to say to them, turn it off bury your family, be in the moment. Mm. Um, but it was a way to, in talking about it, even though my friend said, you know, this, you're in a weird place, um, it makes it less strange and odd. And again, an authenticity about it, a realness that you invest in. 
because that, after all, is what death care is about. It is about caring for both the dead and the living. Mm-hmm. You, your friend said you were being morbid as yeah. you were diving deep into the research yes. for your book. And that, to me, that speaks of um, the American mm. propensity to run away from ideas of death. Yes. Everything's about being vibrant and youthful yes. in our society and our culture. We, we tend to look at old age and growing older as a, a negative. It's a detriment. We definitely don't bring up death in here. Yet during the pandemic, we were faced with death. Uh-huh. Had to think about it differently. Uh-huh. How did you, during the pandemic, how did, how did you look at your life and your experiences and this research? And how did that kind of maybe help you enhance and even evolve, evolve your views of death from where you were throughout this research process? Well, there's two answers to that question. So the past one is, is that Southerners expected to die young. So what changes in the 20th century is not that uh, not just that people lived longer, but people grew with this expectation that dying young was rare and odd and different by about 1950, by 1960. Um, and so one of the big changes that I identify is that change to where I am morbid now, rather than, you know, uh, some Southern families would sit there and talk about family members and as if they're sitting at the table and they'd been dead for 25 years. Mm. Now, the COVID part was a little bit different for me because I was diagnosed with breast cancer in the middle of it and not a scary breast cancer, but you say those words. Yeah. Um, it took a while. Here I am confronted with this and it took a while for me to get used to it, saying these words and then realizing I wasn't going to die. And in fact, a friend of mine said to me, isn't it lucky that we live in this time and place where we have options? Hmm. So for me, COVID was difficult because I had friends who had family members die. We were not personally touched. But that this other set of experiences allowed me to see what it looked like. Yeah. I'd like to introduce my first, my next guest, pardon me, T, Terrell T.J. Brody is a Nashville, native Nashvillian who owns the Terrell Brody Funeral Home. T.J., thank you so much hey. for joining us. Yes, sir. God bless you all. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I do want to make sure I know that, so there are three Terrell Brodies, Terrell Sr., myself, and, and the third. Uh, two of us are walking, one of us is crawling right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, but yes, I definitely uh, I'll wear a lot of hats. Not the owner uh, just yet, but um, I guess with the sweat equity, I guess you could put it up there with my dad. Okay, so <laughs> you wear a lot of hats within the family business, but I understand that you weren't really immediately sold on getting into the family business. Tell me this, okay. what career did you have your eyes set on? Oh no! So this is the thing. I, I, this is so young because I was um, I was born into the business, which is not really common in these times. You know, when you get folks that are funeral directors, you might um, they might have that idea or do an internship and say, "I can do something that's pretty linear," you know, and find themselves and stumble upon funeral service. But for me, this is all I knew and all I do know. Um, and so it was kind of a, in middle school that that teen that preteen age where i'm just like man i feel like this is just forced down my throat i have to say no to birthday parties mm. and cuz i have to work mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm 13 years old so um 
So yeah, that was the the my first impression wasn't the best until I grew older uh, and really saw what really the impact was that we do in the community, and so it gave me more so of a, a confidence um, as I went to college and. I knew what I was here and called to do on this earth. And so being able to serve in this way has been such a blessing. I understand your ministry. Yes. Really oh, definitely. helps you point through toward that. Oh, work. definitely. It's a definitely ministry. So we can't, um, we can't talk about the inevitable without um, some sort of uh, someone who is in control. There's got to be something as a creation has a creator, you know? And so for us, we believe in, in the, in the gospel and God, the father, the son, the Holy spirit. And so, we, we try our best to speak life into the situation because this is something that we all have to experience. Mm-hmm. But there is hope. There's definitely hope that we can cling on to. Now, you know, one of the rituals that many of us participate in, we call it a viewing. That used to be done in homes, right? Oh, definitely. Yes. I know um, uh, Chris knows all too well for her research, but yeah, it's very common to, to, to have um, viewings or wakes um, in your living room of your home. Um, and then sometimes they even have uh, very, very small, intimate funerals as well and then bury in the backyard. So that's that's common, definitely in the South. Now, but the other part of that too, Khalil, is that they had in the olden days, and they still do this, I think, is that they had a um, practice called refreshing the grief where you you had the funeral, you walked to the cemetery in your front porch or wherever it was, <laughs> and then they opened the casket back up for one last look. Mm. And white and black Southerners would do that. Mm-hmm. And in, much to the dismay of the U.S. military when they brought the World War II sol- deceased soldiers home, right. because they kept opening up the bo- the caskets to view the body one last time. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want that to happen. Right. So that's that's definitely, it's taken a different form um, in terms of the, the, the chronological planning to service to end uh, cemetery. Um, it now happens at the funeral itself. So usually speaking, um, in today's time, you would see, okay, if the service starts at 12 o'clock noon, we're going to close the casket at that time, and that's going to start the service. A lot of times you'll see family members not want to to do that. Instead, they want to delay um, that, that casket closing until the end of the service mm. to, to close uh, a chapter, and so we can be able to go to the cemetery and um and and give them this, their final rights there. So yeah, it, it's taking on. A, it's it's still happening for sure. It's it's um, definitely happening way before we get to the cemetery. You know, unless it's a graveside service, which is another option. You see those too. Mm-hmm. So now, that happens. Now, Chris, one of the people you interviewed was about this was funeral home director Ravonda Rucker, who has now transitioned. But let let's hear her voice real quick. Two families need the body there. It helps with closure. Yeah. It does. I think that um, that's why it's so important to have an excellent embalmer. When that family sees you looking as well as you have looked in the last five years and appearing to be at peace, it eases them. I believe that's what that, the, the, the importance of having that body there. Oh, I tell you what, all embalmers are not created equal. They are not. It's, it's an art form. Some guys, you know, some, mm-hmm. some people you can't even recognize. When they do the well. <laughs> And you think, is this who I think it is? Who, this is the family, but who is this? Mm. 
I, I, I think we've all had that experience of not really exactly recognizing a loved one after they've passed. But if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about death rituals with Dr. Christine M. McCusker and Terrell Brody Jr. You can share your comments with us at This Is Nashville. Now, Miss Rucker also talked about home cemeteries, and this feels like a relic of the past. So let's hear another short clip. Um. When your family owned that land, still owns, um, was there a family cemetery on the land? Yes. As a matter of fact, I was talking to a cousin, and there's an old cemetery way, way back. They used to call it the Bend, and it backs up to Stones River. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember it very well, but the cemetery, Emory Cemetery on Compton Road, the land for that cemetery was donated um, by... Weiss, I guess about 200 years ago. There's some headstones there that are just so old, the, the writing is gone. Now, you know, it's really, really fascinating. Ooh, pardon me. Hit the microphone. Well, you know, we know that some cemeteries are somehow protected. But Chris, you talked mm -hmm. about this a little bit earlier, about them serving as a form for us to acquire land. Yeah. Talk to me about that. It's so nice to hear Ms. Rucker's voice again. So thank you for including that clip mm -hmm. um, because she did pass in 2020. Um, so after the Civil War, um, with the economic fluctuation that was going through when enslaved people ceased being property and, and many of them got their own land in a variety of ways, um, houses back in those days, we treat houses as stable, firm things, you know, um, but back then they blew over in any tornado or any strong wind. And so the way to secure land was to bury your dead on it and within sight of the front porch of the house. Mm -hmm. And it had practical implications, but also biblical ones. Mm -hmm. There's my family reunion buried right there. And all I need to do is look out my front window and that's where I'm going to go. Mm -hmm. Now, we're, we're about to take a short break. And TJ, you're going to stay with us. But Chris, I want to ask you this question. If it's, sure. not, if it's not too personal. Please. How do you want your celebration of life to be when you transition? Um, you're asking me to confront my mortality. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want there to be a lot of music. I would like my church friends and my history friends to be in the room and to tell stories about me. I want to, I have two friends in particular who I want to speak about me. I would like them to drink lots of red wine. Mm. Um, and because I am a quintessential historian, I want to be like the ladies I wrote about in the 1920s who purchased for themselves purple coffins because they knew that the body didn't go into the ground until the body went into the ground. You didn't go to heaven. So they were going to be at their funerals and see themselves in those purple <laughs> coffins. Mm -hmm. So I fully believe I will be at my funeral. I'll get to watch those folks talk about me when a pain in the rear I was as a friend or not or whatever. And I'll be in the room with them listening. Doctor, Thank you. Dr. Christine McCusker is an MTSU professor and oral historian, historian who's the author of the new book, Just Enough to Put Him Away Decent. Chris, thank you so much for being thank with you, us Khalil. today. When we come back, we'll explore the diverse and evolving practices of preparing and burying our loved ones after they've passed on. We want to hear from you, so join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. My father follows the West African spiritual practice, Yoruba. There's very specific things that need to happen once he passes. I, as his oldest son, have duties that I have to carry out. The same goes for my younger brother. It was something that my sisters were initially uncomfortable with. They thought they were being looked over because they are women. But once they learned about everything that needed to be done, they were, in many ways, relieved to be free of the heavy responsibilities. But my father had other specific wishes for his service. An example, he told me he wants Jimi Hendrix's album, Electric Ladyland, to be played in its entirety, on a loop, during his service. Now, before the break, we talked with Dr. Chris McCusker about the history of burial practices in the South and how it reflects in the present day. So now let's explore some of the new ways to bury and honor those who have passed on. T.J. Brody from Terrell Brody Funeral Home is still with us. And joining him are two other men who are involved in death care. John Christian Pfeiffer is the, the director of Larkspur Conservation. And Jamie Seals is a hospice chaplain at Aviana. Let Thank you all for being with us. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Khalil. It's yes, wonderful to be you. here. Really great to have you. You know, John Christian, in the last segment, we mentioned some people in the past who've actually secured land by burying their loved ones. Now, you know, securing land through burial is something you may know a little bit about. Talk to me about how that happens. So as an organization, Larkspur Conservation's mission is to conserve land through a revival of natural burial practices. And what we do is we partner um, a land trust organization like the Nature Conservancy, who we're currently working with at our Taylor Hollow property. And we blanket the property with a conservation easement. And when we bury someone in an ecologically pristine or protected environment, we reduce impact by eliminating bombing chemicals, metals, plastics, concretes, and we allow someone to return to the ecosystem and actually benefit nature. That laying our bodies down, I joke a lot of times and I say, over my dead body, mm. will you take this land from <laughs> me? You know, um, this is a great way of doing that and using our bodies for a purposeful way to create an open green space, a nature preserve that's accessible to every community and everyone. Ashes to ashes, ashes dust to, to ashes, dust. Ashes to dust to dust. Mm. Now, Dr. McCusker's book shows how death care evolved from being a community act to a commercial one. And, you know, you're, you're helping it come back to a community act in many ways. How you described how you're doing that. But, you know, talk to me about the impact of that with the people that you're working with. Oh, my gosh. So every time we come with a family to the nature preserve and we walk into the preserve, we're reviving these old traditions, whether it's anointing and caring for the body at home, shrouding the body, placing the body in a pine coffin or a willow basket or simply just wrapped in cloth. Uh, we're able to lay our bodies down and the family participates. They lead this historic practice. We're not doing anything new. These are ancient practices. But what we're doing is taking an ancient practice, applying some modern principles with ecology, and we're actually creating an opportunity to change people's lives through nature, but also protect nature at the same time. Mm. So we have folks that are able to actually lower their person into the grave peer into the grave and experience what we are giving back and show great love and respect for the body um, and then take up shovels and bury our dead in the, in the most simple form. 
Um, and then we, in the spring or in the fall, just like we're getting prepared to do, is we invite our families back in and we have a memorial planting of these native species, trees, flowers, shrubs in the nature preserve, and we watch it grow. Mm. Our T-shirts, our Larkspur T-shirts say, when I go, let me grow. Mm. And after spending 25 years in the, in the funeral industry as a funeral director and embalmer and having been in the industry um, as a funeral director, practicing for 15 years before creating Larkspur, we're all helpers, and we want to emphasize ritual because that's what helps when someone has a loss. And I think it's so powerful for us as humans to get back in there and get close and experience loss and participate rather than observe. Now, now, Jamie, John's Christian's work, it expands on the options of what we want to do with our bodies when we're done with them. Really, it's not, like you said, it's not new. It's an ancient and it's an old practice, helping folks return to older methods of burial. Is hospice care kind of, you know, doing the same thing with the dying process? Well, I think I think it is in a way, um, especially um, as a as a hospice chaplain, and in particular um, with Aviana Hospice, um, we seek to make each encounter about dealing with people, um, people first, um, they're human beings first and foremost. And what that means is everyone you encounter has a story and every single person that you encounter is an individual rooted in a context. And we have to seek to meet those people where they are. And through meeting those people where they are, we can then build a plan for them to help them die with the greatest dignity possible, which does does include um, uh, getting them uh, to their place of rest. Um, in the way that they would want that to be. You say seeking to meet people where they are rather than forcing yes. something upon them. Yes. A lot of times um, in relationships, that's very difficult, particularly with family. You know, you're working with people as they're in nearing the end of their life, their mm -hmm. physical life here on earth. And you're also working with their family members as well. Mm hmm what type of conversations have you been a part of as you're seeking to meet people where they are, but also seeking to help the family out who's going to be losing this person? I think that that is uh, the most complicated part of, of dealing with dying people is that there is no stereotype. And so there is there are stereotypes. But the second the second we judge based on a stereotype, we're going to miss the person. So um, once we have uh, kind of, and I'll give you an example of the World War II veteran who was 92 years old and had never been baptized. Mm. And he uh, had a Church of Christ background. Um, it was important to some of his family that he be baptized before he die. Yeah. You know, so in dealing with that particular issue um, and any uh, spiritual issue, I think we first start with that patient and say, what would you like to accomplish in this situation? And then uh, you can build that out to the convictions that the family members hold. Because each person, as you say, once this individual passes, they are left 
with the grieving process. And if their convictions are not attended to in a in a, a matter of fact way, then that can amplify some of those grief, um, um, some of their grief issues. But at the end of the day, it is that individual's right to self determination, to decide for themselves um, how they want to die, um, and how they wish to die, and the beliefs that they hold. Um, about God and about the afterlife and uh, and um, to respect that process for that person. Now, TJ, you're also in the middle of guiding these conversations. You're helping grieving people know what they want and what they need. Right. You know, what are, talk to me about some of the reasons that clients you work with, they want embalming caskets and vaults. They want as much preservation of the body as possible. Yeah, so there's there's a couple routes to go with this, but I want to make sure I mention that this is still a service and it costs money. So that's the first mode of um, of directory that I can give them as ter- in terms of guardrails. You know, what are we working with here? Because that determines if I want to do um, a direct cremation with no viewing and and just put me in a box. If maybe you all have heard that phrase before, or uh, I want. All the fixings. I want to be in a casket. I want to have you in here. I want to have you in there. I want to have a funeral at this church. I want these. I want this video playing while I'm doing this. So it, it all starts with that. And um, and I'll specifically to say, and you know, in regards to the preservation, it goes with a, kind of the black culture of of how funerals have been for for millennia for us. You know, you'll see. Um, Throughout the, their life, they'll work their whole life from from legal age until they they can't walk anymore. Their loved ones, their the whoever it may be, the matriarch or the patriarch of the family may pass away, and, and the children or the next of kin, their goal is to put them away the best they can because that's what they deserve. Mm. So you'll see a lot of a lot of articles may they may mention this, you know, in terms of black culture with funerals. You'll have hey. We, we didn't get the respect that we deserved while we were living, so I'm going to make sure we do it all out when it's time for me to go. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that a lot, and you'll and, and that will drive a lot of people's uh, decision-making, too, because th- you know they've been working their whole life. I, I need a party for me. I need I need somebody to ride out for me. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you'll see a lot of that. Give them the pageantry Def- definitely. that they feel like they deserve. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Dr. McCusker interviewed a man, Jerry Gaither, for their project. Let's hear from him. It was unheard of for you to hire somebody to come out and, and dig a grave with any kind of an equipment. I guess some did have graves dug by people, but they, basically if you were a very respected person in the community uh, or you had neighbors much that thought anything much of it all, you didn't hire a grave dug. The people would go dig it. You know, that's very interesting because these days it's the, the common practice is People put a, a handful of dirt mm-hmm. upon the casket um, once it's laid down. What are your thoughts? I'd like to hear all of you. What are your thoughts on that practice? As you know, you're obviously doing something very different at Larkspur. I want to hear all three of you. John Christian, what are your thoughts on that? Well, at Larkspur, we're able to. There is no, there is no hired out help to do it. The kin takes care of everything. Larkspur staff, of course, as natural burial guides, we're there to support and pick up the slack. But we want people to be involved and participate and actually take up a shovel. 
even if we have an older person that can't walk to the graveside, we'll take a shovel of soil and we'll walk up to them and let them lay their hands on it and say a prayer and we'll give that soil back. Mm -hmm. Um, We just think it's too too important a part not for someone to be uh, uh, fully participate in or at least have the idea of participating and touching and being present for. Mm -hmm. TJ? That's really cool, by the way, you know, um, a lot of folks, they, they probably don't even know this is an option, too, for Locksburg and things like that. So natural burials, whether it be um, as raw as, as yours or even more, you know, like cremation route, they have biodegradable urns as well. And so that's that's the coolest thing. Um, but for for me, I think that's a, that's a really interesting type of direction. So you'll see that a lot um, on traditional burials. So we'll have that. For us, we'll have some clients or whether it be um, brothers or uh, a group of cousins or something, whatever the clan is of the family, they'll 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 have their own ritual, uh, whether it be during the service or or at the gravesite. You'll see um, I'll let the, the children's close the casket with me. You know, it'll be four or five of us closing the casket yeah. together or um, at the gravesite. They're doing their third ashes ashes uh, with me. And so, you know, we'll 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 say the last rites and then they'll. They'll get their own their own dirt, their own shovels, and they want to help the grave diggers. They want to help the uh, the vault company. You mm-hmm. know, they they want to be involved, and so we let them to an extent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we only have about thirty some seconds left, but you know, talking about families, and you know, Jamie, this is something that you do a lot. How can people talk with their parents or family members about the preparations they desire for when they pass on? I think that it's just it's really important to. To allow people the opportunity to uh, to voice what is meaningful and important to them, um, not not in some ethereal, abstract way, but what is meaningful to you. And once we understand um, what makes someone tick, um, what is meaningful to that person, then we can build from there. I want to thank my guests. John Christian Pfeiffer with Larkspur Conservation, Jamie Seals, hospice chaplain with Aviana, and Terrell T.J. Brody Jr. with Terrell Brody Funeral Home. Also want to give many props to Ndume Olatushani and Dr. Chris McCusker, author of the new book, Just Enough to Put Him Away Decent. Thank you all for this conversation today. It's something that we all need to have. Thank you so Thank much. For Thank us. you. So we're going to go out with a little Jimi Hendrix. Here is Electric Ladyland. We want to thank you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Lemley. It was directed by Elizabeth Burton. Laura Boach is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. You can tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.